And as you're getting back to your place, if you'd please open in your copy of the scriptures to Exodus chapter 3. I'd like to go ahead and begin at the beginning of chapter 3 so that we can get a little bit of the momentum and understanding of the context of what is going to be happening in the scriptures we're looking at this morning. This is an episode or an event in the life of a man named Moses. And it's an amazing, amazing event. It's probably one of the most talked about and referred to events in all of Jewish history. And it came out of nowhere. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. And then he said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. For I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Repurpose. Anyone familiar with that word, repurpose? The internet says it began to be used in sometime in the 1980s. And here are a couple of definitions. To adapt for use with a different purpose. Or to put to a new purpose. With that in mind, just a little bit of help here. What is something that you have repurposed in your home or at your place of work? You guys don't do that? Turned drawers into shelves. Okay, good. Very good. Well, I'll throw a couple at you. A uh, 55-gallon drum cut in half turned into a feed trough. We did that one time. We also used it for raised bed garden, an old drum that came from the place I used to work at. Um, we had a dog kennel that uh, several months ago we turned into a chicken coop. And that's worked really well, too, for us. Uh, we were down in Oklahoma City at a restaurant down there. And it was really an interesting place to go into. But they had taken these extension cord lights and wrapped them around a 6 by 6 inch rough beam and hung it from the ceiling. And it made a really interesting looking contemporary chandelier. It was very interesting. But... A good friend of mine became a legend of repurposing, and, and in those days we would have called it resourcefulness. When returning from a camping trip with a group of inner city young men and ministry staff, they were in the mountains, and they were a few hours outside of Los Angeles returning. About halfway down the mountain, a fuel line burst or split for some reason and left them stranded along the mountain roadway there in this old ministry van. After diagnosing the problem, Steve looked around on the inside of the van, glanced up at the ceiling, and he spotted the vinyl bead around the edge of the ceiling lining. In a few minutes, he had cut out about a three-foot section of that hollow vinyl tube bead and used it to replace the damaged fuel line. Carefully, that van proceeded down the mountain all the way into the city of L.A., full of grateful young men. I thought it was rather ingenious 
to pick something like that and see how it could be used. This definition of repurposing, I think, works best this morning. The process by which an object with one use value is transformed or redeployed as an object with an alternative use value. You see, what we do with stuff, God sometimes does with men. After 40 years of practice, Moses was probably a pretty good shepherd. He would have known the food and the health care needs of the sheep. He was wary of the predators. Predators like lions and bears. And he knew which poisonous plants and terrain to avoid. He knew how to calm the sheep and how to move them from place to place. We can assume Moses was a faithful steward of his father-in-law's sheep. Now on this particular day, Moses had taken the sheep around to the backside of Horeb, a desert mountain. If you can bring that map up. Okay, you can see down there, there's a peninsula in the middle that comes down to a point, and that's the Sinai. And they believe the Horeb, Mount Horeb, or also Mount Sinai, was at the very bottom of that, on that peninsula, or else just across the way in that other red circle. There's no exact understanding where that is right now. But that's where Moses was. He was probably hoping to find grass or water for the herd. And at age 80, he had become a good old shepherd. And as far as he knew, a shepherd he would always be for the rest of his life. But the Lord Yahweh had another rodeo planned for this livestock farmer. Life was about to change dramatically. He was shocked to stumble onto the scene of a blazing bush raging with fire. But it remained unconsumed. And out of that fiery bush he heard the very voice of God. The voice even spoke his name. You see, the angel of the Lord knew him personally. The sight and the voice struck terror in Moses. But he also heard God recite the names of his own forefathers, the patriarchs of Israel. He called the Hebrew slaves back in Egypt, my people. And he conveyed such compassion toward their suffering. And the Lord God even declared at that time, now I have come down to deliver my people out of their suffering. And out of suffering into a beautiful land, a land he had promised generations ago, that was all amazing, wonderful news. Moses might have thought, All right, God, go for it. That will be awesome when you do that. But why are you telling me? Why are you telling me the obscure old shepherd on the backside of this mountain? Here's what God says, verse 10. Come now, come now, Moses, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are about to embark in some amazing and, and deep and profound words that you gave to your man Moses to be written in the book of Exodus in our Bible. Lord, please give us understanding. We know that your word says it's spiritually discerned. The smartest, wisest person in here will not get anything from this unless your spirit opens our minds. And those of us who may be the slowest can be brought to the realization and the glory of God by your spirit. Please teach us. Please open our hearts to see you at work. And Lord, apply this word to us that we would live, live for your glory. Amen. You see, Yahweh repurposes the shepherd. It's a change of predators and it's a change of charges. Charges meaning those who he would be responsible for. Moses may have thought once a shepherd, always a shepherd. But suddenly the players and the states, stakes have risen sharply. Now instead of sheep and wolves, it will be Israelite slaves and a Pharaoh. In the background of this transition, 
You can almost hear the muffled echo of the Hebrew striker 40 years ago back in Exodus chapter 2. Remember when Moses had broken up their battle, their fight amongst each other. And the one said to him, who made you a prince and a judge over us? It was a rhetorical question that at that time when it was uttered could only be answered, no one. And perhaps that question haunted Moses for decades. For 40 years. Who made you what you think you are? And why? Well in Acts chapter 7. and verse 23. We get a glimpse into the heart of Moses at that moment. We read there. Now when he was 40 years old. Moses. It came into his heart to visit his brethren. The children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong. He defended and avenged him who was oppressed. And struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand. But they did not understand. At the age of 40, Moses had gone out from the palace of Egypt to visit his people who were under such oppression, his fellow Israelites, Hebrews. And that occasion came where he struck the one who was beating a Hebrew man. And it killed him. And he buried him in the sand. And we get the sense from Acts that as he performed this, where he was going to go with it and how it was going to come together, we don't know and I don't think he knew. But there was something in his mind that he understood he was to be a deliverer of the people at that time. But the people did not understand. The answer that they did not understand and the answer that was missing that day in Egypt has arrived this day 40 years later on Mount Sinai. God is making Moses prince, judge, and deliverer of the enslaved. And it crossed my mind. I wonder if the antagonist Hebrew who threw that verbal javelin at Moses was around to witness Moses' return. But is Moses ready for this? Is he? It is very clear that the last 40 years were not spent trekking around the desert with his sheep, dreaming of a day when he would someday return to Egypt. As Exodus chapter 2 verse 21 reads, Then Moses was content to live with the man, Ruel, his father-in-law. Moses had barely escaped Egypt with his life. The royalty and power were gone. He demonstrates no desire to find it again. The desert... His little family and his hired job as a shepherd for his father-in-law had done him well for the last many years. So Moses' first reaction to, to God, mind you, in verse 11 is, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? It is very clear a resistance to the call. Moses not only fears, but he accurately knows that he is inadequate. It's his first objection, and, and I say, hold on, because Moses has at least four more protests that he will eventually raise. But this first one is, who am I? Remember, 40 years ago, Moses demonstrated he had no skill or temperament or authority to deliver anyone. Those Israelites despised him at the moment, and the Egyptians tried to kill him. Besides that, he is nobody in the middle of nowhere. And God wants him to confront the most powerful man on the planet. Moses wouldn't know where to begin, how to manage the people, or even where to take them. What does God do? Here is God's reply. And first of all, here is what God did not say. God did not say to Moses, look Moses, you still have some credibility back in Egypt. He didn't say, Moses, you've learned valuable lessons taking care of sheep, learning the desert, fighting off lions and bears. You're ready. He didn't say that. He doesn't say, Moses, you are most unique. You know both the Egyptians and the people of God. You are perfect for the role. None of that. None of that build them up stuff. And when I use the word repurpose, understand it's a metaphor. 
I am not implying that Moses had intrinsic qualities that God saw hidden in him that would qualify him as a great leader. No, we see that's not true. What does God say to him? I will certainly be with you. God promises his presence. Future men of God would give Yahweh similar objections. And then what would God say? Look at Gideon in Judges chapter 6 verse 15. So Gideon said to him, to God, Oh my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 6, Then said I, Jeremiah, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am a youth, for you shall go to all to whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. One of the commentators points out something very important. For those of us this morning sitting here listening and reading this word. Those of us who are resisting the Lord's call. Are you hesitating? Are you hesitating to a call to missions? Are you hesitating to evangelize and share the gospel? Are you hesitating to reach out to a neighbor? Or to a relative? Are you hesitating to serve God in some way? Hesitating for similar reasons? Well, here's the quote. The Lord did not take away or even promise to take away Moses' nervousness or to impart boldness to him. Moses is called to the obedience of faith without seeing any actual change in himself or his situation. That is profound. Let me read that again. The Lord did not take away or even promise to take away Moses' nervousness or to impart boldness to him. Moses is called to the obedience of faith without seeing any actual change in himself or in the situation. End quote. The Lord's response reveals this entire enterprise has very little to do with Moses. And all to do with God. The Lord Yahweh is calling Moses. The Lord could have justly called any man on earth at that time. Or he could have done it without using anyone. But the reality is God called him. And God promised to actively be with him. You see the word with. That, that Hebrew word means more than geographically. Or approximately where Moses is in a spatial sense. No, it includes how God is present. You see, Yahweh promised he will be fully active and engaged with all of life that surrounds Moses. When he says with, he's not saying you can look over my shoulder and I'll be there nearby. No, he is saying I am with you full on in, around in you. And he tells Moses, I am with you. An honest analysis of Moses' objection reveals he was right. He is nobody with no ability and certainly no authority. But God, but God, who possesses all power and authority in the universe, placing the stars, the planets in their place, holding them there, knowing every step that every man will make, that God has called him and will be with him. He goes on, God says, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And it's a prophecy of provision. The Lord God would deliver and he would lead and he would look out for every need along Israel's way. Eventually, after it was accomplished, he would bring Moses and the people back to Mount Sinai. 
And on that day, Moses would remember that God had been faithful to every word of his promise. But Moses is unconvinced. Verse 13, then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And this is an objection of validity. The question is actually, Who do I tell them is sending me? What authority do I have to come and deliver? Who is sending me? Remember, Remember, in this moment, what is Moses' posture? If we look back in the chapter, as far as we know, he's still hiding his face. He's hearing this voice coming out of this blazing bush and he's afraid, it says, to look upon God. That is Moses' posture. And he knew he was in the presence of God. He wasn't asking this question for himself, but he anticipates how the people will challenge him. And he knew that when he spoke to the Israelites, They were not going to have a blazing bush burning strangely before them. Nor would they hear this voice of God coming out of the fire. They would simply be hearing an 80-year-old failure from the past whose career so far was tending to another man's sheep. How does God respond? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. The name of God. I am who I am. If you sit back and and think about that, if you ponder that name, I would say it really can play with your mind. The tense of the verb and the simplicity of the phrase, they respond to each other and they create this identity that you can't put an intellectual rope around. Now it is certainly God's prerogative to take on any title he would create or desire. But honestly his people have been challenged for millennia to provide a simple comprehensive definition of this name. We know it. We understand much about it. But we can't comprehensively grasp it. Because it is the name of God that he has given to himself. But here are a few tools with which to plumb the depth of God's name. I am who I am. It is represented by these consonants. The four consonants are sometimes referred to as a tetragrammaton. This name is derived from a Hebrew verb that means to be, to exist, to cause, or come to pass. It is considered by observant Jews to be too holy to be pronounced by man. One Jewish source explained the vehemence with which the utterance of the name is denounced in the Mishnah, which was a record of Jewish oral tradition. This suggests that the use of the name Yahweh was unacceptable in rabbinical Judaism. The teachers, the rabbis, could not speak that name. It goes on to say, He who pronounces the name with its own letters has no part in the world to come. He's condemned. To destruction. Such is the prohibition of pronouncing the name as written that it is sometimes called the ineffable, the unutterable, the distinctive name or explicit name. End quote. You see, rather than use the name Yahweh when needed, Jews may substitute other names of God, such as Adonai or Elohim. A group of Jewish scribes from the 5th to the 10th century A.D., they're called the Masoretes, they utilized vowels from the Hebrew word Adonai, which means sovereign or Lord Master. These vowels were inserted between the first two consonants, Y and H, and between the last two, the W and H. And it's commonly pronounced, and I'm sure I won't be like a full... Jew in saying this, but something with the way of Yahweh. Yahweh. God's name Yahweh speaks of self-existence. We call that aseity. It's a theological term. It means God is self-existent. He is not dependent 
on anyone or anything for any purpose or any need. He is complete in himself. Acts 17 verse 24 says, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. Yahweh is declared, declares that God is eternal. Yahweh has always existed. He has no beginning or end. One source said he is self-derived and self-originating, but in my feeble mind, that seems to be a step backward for the purpose of adding definition. God is not derived, nor does he have an origin. He has always been. Yahweh was and is and is to come, just like the heavenly creatures cry out in Revelation 4, verse 8. Yahweh does not bow to the limits of time. They do not exist for Yahweh. We are constrained so much by that border of time. We never have enough. We always run out of it. We're getting older. We, it's such a limiting thing for us. That is not even on the landscape of God. For he rules time. He uses it for whatever he would choose to. He's been there and done that. Literally for everything you can ever imagine that will ever come. And he knows everything that has existed before anything existed. This name I am who I am depicts his eternality. Again, four, Revelation 4 verse 8, the four living creatures, magnificent creatures, each having six wings. They were full of eyes around and within and they don't rest day or night saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Revelation 1 verse 8. Christ says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. It also shows us that Yahweh is immutable. He is without change. Yahweh does not change in his essence and character. He does not become more or less perfect in all that he is. Hebrews 13 verse 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 1 verse 10, You Lord in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak you will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. There will be no change. God could not become more perfect at any time or he would have been less perfect in the past. He is complete and full in who he is. Now this name Yahweh in verse 14 is not the first use of Yahweh in the scriptures. Yahweh is actually used several times in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 4 verse 26. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born. And he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of Yahweh. Noah said this in Genesis chapter 9. Blessed be the Lord Yahweh, the God of Shem. And may Canaan be his servant. Abram in Genesis chapter 12. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to Yahweh and called on the name of Yahweh. Isaac, Genesis chapter 26. So he built an altar there and called on the name of Yahweh. And he pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. And then Jacob. Genesis 28. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely Yahweh is in this place. And I did not know it. When God presents his name to Moses on Mount Horeb, it seems rather initial, but, but it's been there. And perhaps, perhaps the name Yahweh was lessened in use over the centuries. Or perhaps the patriarchs had not grasped the full depth and glory of God's name as he was presenting it now. But regardless of the reason, in Exodus 
Yahweh makes clear that Yahweh is his personal name. It is given to his children to know him by. In your scriptures, when you see the word Lord with a capital L and then smaller capitals, L-O-R-D, all caps, that is usually the place, I think it's probably always the place, where Yahweh is used in the scriptures. Some of yours may not indicate it that way, but that's another way to know what's being said there. Uh, In one of the versions that has recently come out, they have replaced L-O-R-D in caps with the word Yahweh to present that. But that's not it. There's more. Moreover, in verse 15, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. You saw the connection with each one of those patriarchs using the name Yahweh, and now he says, I am the God of those men. And he declares, he declares here his character. God is faithful. He is faithful to his covenant people. And he is eternal. Forever. Without beginning or end. Now after confronting these first initial objections. And a few details. God now commands Moses to get on with the mission. Go, gather, and speak. Verse 16, go. And gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. You see, Yahweh now begins to set up his speaking through his shepherd. Yahweh will speak through his shepherd. And his message to his suffering children is that I am here and I see you. Now it was much more effective for Moses to address the leaders, the elders of these people, than to communicate to the approximately 600,000 men, or much less the 2 million men, women, and children that likely inhabited Egypt who were Israelites. This strategy also is an example of God working through leadership in His kingdom. Yahweh commands Moses to speak to the elders. This would eventually extend into His new covenant people. Centuries later, After Christ's ministry on earth, God would affirm the role of elders in the New Testament church through his apostles, Paul, Peter, and James. And his rallying message to the elders was, I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt. Can you imagine what it was like for those elders to hear this? I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt. Yahweh's fulfillment of his covenant brings them up out of affliction up to what? An inhabited land. And that's key. This is the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. This is land that is already developed. It's land that has been managed by people well. It is luscious, beautiful, abundant land. It says it is flowing with milk and honey. That's a Bible's way of saying this. You put a seed in and it will grow a hundredfold. The land was rich, it was fertile, and it was producing. That's where he's taking them. As we studied in verse 1 through 9, when God delivers, he delivers from something to something for a reason. This delivery from slavery in Egypt to an abundant land of their own. And I'm going to go back to what we did a little bit last week. It is a clear shadow. It's a type of what Yahweh did centuries later when he sent his son Jesus Christ. The one scripture says is of greater honor than Moses. That would be the Messiah. In Christ Jesus, God came down to earth to bring his children up. John 1 verse 14 And the Word became flesh, that God, the Son, became a man, and He dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. The glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6, provides more detail. It says, Who although He existed, the Son, in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself and took the form of a bondservant, a slave, And he was made in the likeness of men 
And he was found on earth in the appearance as a man. He was a man and he humbled himself to become obedient to the point, point of death. Even the death on a cross. And Christ delivered. He delivered from and into. Colossians 1 says, Christ has delivered us from the power of darkness. Are any of you still shackled in that power of darkness? Unfreed. Groveling as it will with, with shackles on you and chains to certain sins that you can't be free from. You're unwilling to repent and turn to Christ from. Christ has come to deliver you from the power of darkness and convey you, move you into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Ephesians 2 verse 12. That at that time you were without Christ. Every one of us. We were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. We were strangers from the covenants of the promise. We had no hope. And we were, were without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you and I who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He has delivered us and he has brought us. Why? Romans 6 says, But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. One more. One more support on that. Colossians 1 verse 21. You who were alienated and were enemies in your mind. That's all of us. We were alienated. You may not have realized it. But until Christ came, we had no hope. You were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. Yet now... He has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. That means the Christ's body through his death has reconciled us to present us holy and blameless and above reproach in the sight of God. I don't care what your past has been, how perverted, how corrupted, what a liar you were, how dishonest you were, unfaithful you may have been. In Christ, He will place you and you will be holy and you will have no more blame and you will be above reproach. That's what Christ does. You are now no longer strangers to God. You are no longer foreigners. You are fellow citizens with the saints and you're members of the household of God. Brother, we were talking about a week or so ago. Between these two ears lies one of our biggest enemies. And we lose that battle so often because we do not stand on the truth. We say, how could I be accepted here? Everybody looks so good. And I've heard that from many of us. If people only knew. Man, if we only knew each other, we wouldn't want to come within 10 feet of each other if we knew all the filth and the depth of the sin. But God has taken us and he has made us new creatures, new creations in Christ. And because of Christ, because of Christ's blood on that cross, paying for our sin, we have been made clean. We are holy. We are blameless and we are above reproach. Not because of what we have done since we trusted in Christ, but because of what Christ did on that cross. He has made us that way. And he will present us that way. Then God assures Moses that the elders will listen. Then they will heed your voice. And I think in this whole chapter, that may have been like a fresh air, like a, a cool water to a thirsty man. That's thankfully because that's a rare instance in Moses' life when people will heed his voice. He is against so much opposition, but God will move in the hearts of these elders. And verse 18 goes on to say, And you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt, and you shall say to him, The Lord God of Hebrews has met with us 
And now please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. God is setting up before the mind's eyes of Moses that this is what's going to happen. You're going to speak to the elders. They're going to go with you. They're with you. They will, you go to appear before the king of Egypt. And this is what you will tell him. God not only gave Moses a message to the elders, but he also had a word for that tyrant of Egypt, Pharaoh. The Lord's message to the tyrant. Now if you look at this, understand, this is not a ruse by God. He is not attempting to trick Pharaoh into letting the people go on a fake three-day journey just to get them out of the country. This had at least three points to it. He wanted to demonstrate to Israel and the world the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. Secondly, he wanted to reveal that Pharaoh considered himself the Lord of these slaves. You're not going anywhere. And thirdly, he wanted to set the stage, this magnificent stage, for repeated demonstrations of God's miraculous power over and over in devastating the Pharaoh and the false gods of Egypt. We know that because Romans chapter 9 verse 17, for the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Pharaoh had no idea what he was getting into when he denied this simple request. But that will come later. This is a vision of what would happen. Then Yahweh guarantees the future. Verse 19, But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. Pharaoh's response to the message here from Moses is not an admission that Pharaoh was so strong-willed that even Yahweh could not break this hard guy. No, I want you to compare verse 19 and 20. Look at them together. Verse 19 and 20. Verse 19 says, Not even by a mighty hand, or except by a strong hand, or except under compulsion. Then look at the simplicity of verse 20. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in its midst. And after that, he will let you go. God's response to Pharaoh's response is, where even a mighty hand could not move the heart of Pharaoh to surrender, Yahweh would simply stretch out his hand from which disastrous plagues would inflict Egypt over and over again. And Pharaoh would not simply allow them to leave, but he would beg them to go. The power of God through plundering the ESV study Bible says plundering in the ancient Near East was what victorious armies did to cities they defeated. God's description here must have seemed ludicrous to Moses. What, he, he's, he's got sheep and he's in a desert on the backside of this mountain. How could a nation of slaves and shepherds dare challenge the mighty army of Egypt? Pharaoh owned a war machine, a machine of horses and iron chariots, accompanied by innumerable soldiers, armed to the teeth with the latest in military weaponry. But what God was promising was far more than a narrow escape. Barely making it. It would be a landslide defeat in utter shame. Verse 21, and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. He will give the Israelites favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be when you go, that you shall not go empty handed. This will be a victory of abundance and humiliation. Verse 22, but every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. And so you shall plunder the Egyptians. And the idea is not so much that they decorated them with necklaces and earrings, but it's like, you're going to have so much, your kids are going to be walking out with this stuff all over them. You won't be able to carry it. You will plunder them. One commentator said, Ordinarily a defeated nation was plundered by mighty warriors. But in this case, Egypt 
would be plundered by women, by housewives. A complete triumph. Furthermore, claiming these trophies of war would demonstrate God's providence for the silver and gold would eventually be used to build the tabernacle. Thus the Egyptians were plundered for the glory of God. End quote. God's providence demonstrates his omnipotence and his eternality. Yahweh had already foretold this victory. Do you know that? Centuries before, he laid this out to Abram. Genesis 15, verse 13. He says to Abraham, and Abraham has no idea. He says, Now know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. Israel in Egypt, which was to come. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Our sovereign providential God. Two things at least I hope you can go away with this morning. If you are Christ's God is actively with you. There is nothing to fear. If God is calling you to reach that neighbor, begin praying and looking for every opportunity and pursue it. If God is calling you to speak to someone in your family, if God is calling you to the other side of this planet or to Old Town or to the campus or to another place where you go and you see people, God is with you. He wants to use you. And he will glorify himself through you. It's the most amazing thing. We are nobodies. I, I saw the beggar, the, the quote yesterday that about us being beggars, uh, showing other, other beggars a place to find bread. And then I texted back to the fellow, that is awesome. And you know something? He has made beggars his ambassadors. And that's what we are. We are ambassadors for Christ. He is with us. Joshua 1 verse 8 through 9 is another one of those verses. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. For the Lord your God is. Anybody know? With you. Wherever you go. Psalm 46 verse 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Isaiah 7 verse 14. And we know this, these verses. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And shall call his name Emmanuel. That name is clarified in Joseph's dream in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 1. An angel appears to him and saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. And at the end of Matthew's gospel, at the very end, as Jesus addressed his disciples and those gathered with him, he said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So he's with us. So what? Well, it's Yahweh who is with you. It's not some big goon who can stand beside you and protect you in a street battle. It's not even the governor of Kansas or the president of the United States. It's no one like that. It is the God who created everything out of nothing. He is with you. What can we fear? First Chronicles 11, 29. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory, and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Everyone, everything. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you reign over all, and in your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. 1 Timothy 1, verse 17. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, 
be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. First Timothy 6.15 This is who this Yahweh is. He is the blessed and only sovereign, the potentate, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in inapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And as we close this morning, I want to take those thoughts that he is with us and that he is Yahweh. And I want to bring that to us to Romans chapter 8, verse 31. And I'd like for us to read this together. We have different uh, translations, I understand. So I've asked the guys to bring that up. And I'd like for us to read Romans 8, 31 to the end of the chapter. Please stand with me. And this is how we'll close this morning. And please read out loud with me. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, please send us out. As you sent Moses, please send us out into our home, to our children, to our places of work, to our schools, perhaps to governments, to nations, to lost tribes, to those who hate you, to those who have never heard of you. Please send us for your name's sake and for your glory and your honor. Dissolve our objections and our resistance as you did Moses so that we would know the joy, the thrill of being with you, you being with us. To God be the glory. In your name we pray. Amen.